If clams could sing, they wouldn't. If we were naming constellations now, maybe there'd be one called the car phone. William Blake should not have set that tiger on fire. I wish a toad would sit on a toadstool like a stool. I'm gonna avoid complimenting hurricanes for a while. She who fills the bird feeder is the true bird feeder. Play-Doh is not naturally occurring. Horseflies are named after the thing they annoy. I'm allowed to say fall has sprung. So many stars. Hello, and welcome to the 34th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast about, well, there's no reason to beat around the bush, and I'm certainly not ashamed of what the podcast is about, so why don't I just come out and say exactly what this podcast is about? It's about the outdoors. If you came to this podcast expecting it to be about true crime, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but we very rarely touch on true crime. Fortunately for you, there are many podcasts that do. If you came to this podcast expecting it to be about your specific personal schedule for the week, not only do we never touch on that, but my guess is that there are no podcasts that do, unless you make those podcasts. In which case, you should be more adept at not mistaking this one for those. If you came to this podcast expecting it to be about one man's efforts to keep a foundering podcast above water while its few remaining contributors furiously drill holes in its rotten bottom from the inside, then you actually have come to the right place to get some of that too, unfortunately. And I'd like to use this introduction to this episode to address that aspect of this show. And I can do whatever I want with the intro, so that's what's going to happen. So I'm sure, human nature being what it is, that a lot of you out there are assuming the worst. You've noticed the dwindling contributions from people other than myself and the bad contributors. You've noticed the dwindling lengths of each episode, and you've assumed the worst. You've assumed that the contributors must have some problem with me, that they must agree with Ben and Dwayne's perception of me as an unreasonable tyrant. You've assumed that the contributors have gotten bored with Out of All Doors, that they no longer like Out of All Doors, that they no longer like working with me. You've assumed the worst. That's just how some of you are for some reason. I don't know why you're like that, but you are. Maybe you were born that way. Maybe you were raised that way. Maybe you trained for years to become that way. Maybe you found a bottle with a genie in it. You rubbed the bottle. The genie offered to grant you one wish, and you wished to be the kind of person who assumes the worst. Maybe you specifically wish to be the kind of person who assumes the worst about Out of All Doors. However it happened, here we are, and many of you are assuming the worst about where the former contributors have gone. But what if you're wrong? What if your assumptions are all wrong? What if the worst hasn't happened and the real reason that they aren't contributing to the show anymore is that they're all dead? I'm not saying this is the case, but it could be for all you know. Yet there you sit, assuming that they're mad at me and don't want to be on the show. And it never even occurs to you that the reason they're not on the show could be something much more innocuous, such as each of them being dead. Think about it. Cayman could very easily be dead, or at least being held in captivity by a hermit or a hobo or something. They seem like pretty lawless people in general, and we know he's been spending time with them for months, so why assume that he's not on the episode because of some fault of mine? Get real. I mean, for once in your life, show just the tiniest bit of optimism and consider the possibility that if he were still alive, he'd probably be on the show. So if he's not on the show, maybe he's dead. And the saint. Some of those animals that he's seen in the wild, if he really has seen them, could easily kill a man. And while the saint does exhibit a certain resilience, 
I also don't have a lot of faith in his ability to seek out medical attention when he needs it. And if those animals aren't real, well, then he's got even bigger problems that make it even seem more likely that he could be dead now, right? I mean, give me one good reason to assume that the saint doesn't like me or the show anymore over the possibility that he never had any issues with me or the show and he's just dead. Listen, have any of you ever heard of Occam's Razor? It's a concept that basically means that the simplest explanation is probably the correct one. And what could be a simpler explanation for the steep decline in out-of-all-doors contributors than death? Look, we spend a lot of time on out-of-all-doors talking about nature, because in terms of things you find outdoors, nature has got to be number one. I just don't know what else could even be close. Anyway, what's one big thing everyone always says about death? It's natural, right? Don't people always say that? I hear it dozens of times every day. I hear my neighbors chatting about it. I hear my students chatting about it. I hear people in their cars with the windows rolled down shouting about it to people in other cars with their windows rolled down. They're all saying, death is natural. They're thrilled by the idea for some reason. Just the other day I heard an intelligent person say to no one in particular, death is the most natural thing there is. So, given the widespread acceptance of this fact, and I do believe it's fact, why should it be so hard to believe that most of the Out of All Doors contributors have died? In fact, as contributors to a podcast about the outdoors who frequently contributed segments about nature, doesn't it just make sense that they would go out in the most natural way possible, that being via death? Could one accurately say the following? They died as they lived, about nature. Yes, sure, the phrasing is a little clunky, but the point remains and is mostly unassailable. Of course, there's always an elephant in the room. There's a saying that says that, and I say it too because it's always a good idea to say yourself what sayings say. And the elephant in this room is how come all the mediocre to good contributors are probably dead, and all the worst contributors are still alive and contributing to the show. I don't know. I've cried the same question to the heavens many times. Why Harrison, I cry. Why couldn't it have been Cousin Ben, Dwayne, Grang, and the Ghost instead? Not saying that I actually wish death on those people, of course. I'm just saying that if I had to choose who would still be alive and contributing to the show versus who would be probably dead and not contributing to the show, well... Okay, but think about this. In a weird way, the fact that Cousin Ben and Dwayne are still on Out of All Doors is pretty strong evidence that all the good contributors are dead, right? Because Cousin Ben and Dwayne have been by far the most hostile toward me in Out of All Doors. But they keep contributing, right? So if even my most vocal critics are still around, then why would the people who I was good friends with, who I was very close with, and who sincerely loved me in the show no longer be contributors unless they died? Do you see how much sense this makes? Anyway, alright, well, I hope you've learned a valuable lesson about assuming the worst. Sometimes when you assume the worst has happened, you're wrong. Sometimes the worst hasn't happened at all, but in fact, everyone is probably just dead. So the upshot of all of this is that episodes are just going to be shorter now. You're going to have my regular segments, something unlistenable from Cousin Ben and Dwayne, and maybe some bonus segments as I think of them. And I guess we'll keep checking in with Greg until he meets his increasingly likely end. And if all that only adds up to 30 minutes, then so be it. When over half of your contributors do the most natural thing possible and die, it's inevitable that your show's going to get shorter. And if it turns out that they're not dead, but they're just in some comas, and they wake up ready and eager to contribute, then of course we'll welcome them back and the episodes will expand accordingly. 
Also, I got another email from Listener LC again this month. She writes, I just had a great idea that would involve you drastically changing your life for maybe a not-at-all commensurate payoff. Now, I know that Walden Pond was born of Thoreau's experiment in simplicity. Well, I know that as much as anyone who read the Wikipedia page instead of the actual book. And that you're already writing a novel. But, what if you quit your job, gave away your external hard drive, and modeled your life after Thoreau's experiment? Wouldn't that be cool? Or you could just take your manuscript to the woods for an hour without your phone. That would probably be good enough. Okay, LC, look. There are a lot of differences between me and Thoreau, but the biggest one is this. In Walden, Thoreau famously says, We do not ride on the railroad, it rides upon us. And he's entitled to his opinion. I'm not saying he isn't entitled to his opinion. But I can't agree with him, because actually, and I think the facts mostly support me, we ride on the railroad and it does not ride upon us. That's what I think. Look, maybe what Thoreau said was true for him, but I just can't get past the fact that he says we and us in that quote. Speak for yourself, Henry David. Even allowing for the fact that he said it a long time ago, I still think that even at that time, most people were riding on the railroad and the railroad was not riding upon them. My point is, I just can't see myself modeling my life after the experiment of someone who I disagree with so strongly on such a key point. If you're the kind of person who thinks that we don't ride on the railroad, it rides upon us, then please, by all means, model your life after his experiment. But me? Sorry, no. If thinking that we ride upon the railroad and it doesn't ride upon us disqualifies me from Thoreau's lifestyle, and I think it does, then I'm afraid you'll have to count me out. Let's get on with the rest of the episode. And since that's not the actual line that I usually use at the end of the intro, I'm going to have to be a little redundant here as I say, let's begin, shall we? We climb the rope, hands over hands, as if we are in gymnasium class at public high school, and the gymnasium teacher, who also coaches the swimming team, has instructed us to reach the very top of the rope to ring the bell thereat. But we are in no gymnasium class, we are in no gymnasium, and there will be no bell at the top of this rope when we reach it. The metaphor, as is the case with so many of our metaphors, is far more unapt than apt. At the top of this rope is a hatch which, when opened, becomes a means to attain entrance to a treehouse through the floor of the treehouse, but when closed is actually an obstruction to entering a treehouse. We hope to find it open, or if not open, then shortly to become open. And here we are, the top of the rope. The hatch is closed. We knock thereupon, and after uttering the code phrase in response to a whispered demand to utter the code phrase, that code phrase being, no, you utter the code phrase, the hatch is opened and we crawl up through it and into the treehouse, already sensing that which we, and probably you, had a presentiment that we would sense, sensing them specifically with the sense of sight, perhaps the most widely used sense. We have entered... The Battery The final boat will leave the island, passengers on the deck waving their hands as she kneels in the damp sand, a dried-out starfish corpse mere inches from her left ankle. Behind her, the palm jungle will sigh, resigning itself to spending the next few days, months, maybe even years in close proximity to her. She will watch the boat and its passengers grow smaller at the exact same rate, their proportions relative to each other remaining perfectly consistent. Beyond them, the sun will set, 
dipping into the water, dunked like a cookie which slips from the dunker's grasp, becomes saturated and sinks. She will wish she had not announced that she would rather live the rest of her life on this island than get back on a boat full of people who think that her favorite band is bad just because a few of its members, in their old age, have expressed some regressive views which, incidentally, she does not even agree with. She will flop backward on the beach, her legs still folded under her without pain, a blessing of flexibility inherited from both sides of her family. And in that doomed and lonely dusk, she will see bats in flight, and she will cry. The door will be locked, just as it has been on every other day that he has checked the status of its lockedness. He will return to his post on the top floor, dragging his feet, thinking of any excuse to check the empty rooms, the most common excuse being to make sure that the empty rooms are indeed still empty. He will consider going out onto the roof and using his last flare. He will go so far as to actually walk out onto the roof with the flare gun in his hand, the last flare loaded and ready to fire. He will look at the SOS he painted on the roof. He will think about how, with just a few more lines, he could make it say 888 instead. But where would that get him? What would that accomplish? Nothing, of course. But is it not sometimes nice to do something that accomplishes nothing? Of course, he will then realize it may actually be counterproductive. A helicopter might fly over, and where SOS might have persuaded it to lower him a ladder, 888 will probably not persuade it to do anything, may in fact persuade it to do something bad. He will look at the SOS, thinking about all the ways in which it is smarter to leave it as is. Then he will set the flare gun down, pick up the paint, and change the SOS to an 888. And as he finishes, he will look out across the tops of all the other buildings stretching out to the edge of the city, and in that doomed and lonely dusk, he will see bats in flight, and he will cry. The lean-to will leak when it rains, but it will rarely rain. That will be a stroke of good fortune. She will wait for them to return with a stretcher for her and her pulverized leg. She will not have been able to assist with the construction of the lean-to outside of a supervisory role, a role which she will have filled perhaps too enthusiastically, or too critically at least. She will wonder if her harsh supervision of the lean-to construction will be the reason they used to excuse themselves from coming back for her. Or will there be another reason, or will they perhaps each invent their own reasons, none of them calling out the others for the flimsiness of their reasons for fear that their own reasons will then be called out? She will look up at the ceiling of the lean-to, fading sunlight coming through the same cracks that admit the rain. She will look at the pictures of her kids that she has stuck there with a natural adhesive that oozes from the sticks from which her lean-to is constructed. She will wish she had brought better pictures of her kids. These pictures, she will notice, these pictures, she will notice, will not be representative of how her kids actually look. For example, the picture of her son will make it look as if her son likes Luke's warm pizza buffet when he actually hates it. She will stop looking at the pictures, roll onto her stomach, and pull herself toward the lean-to entrance with fingers which have become strong because of this exact activity. At the lean-to entrance, she will look out over the valley, and in that doomed and lonely dusk, she will see bats in flight and she will cry. The fortress will have been abandoned, all of its occupants fleeing before the prophesied eruption of the local volcano. Even the prisoners in the dungeon will have been evacuated, except for one, and he will cease calling out his questions, cease calling out his demands. He will know it is futile, know he is alone, but he will not know why, because no one will have mentioned the prophecy to him. 
No one will even have mentioned the volcano to him, and since he is from a far distant land, an emissary who delivered a message which the monarch just absolutely despised, then he will not even know about the volcano just from the mere fact of having grown up in close proximity to it. He will at first enjoy not being tortured. Then he will begin to wish he could have just a little of the torture back, as long as he could be assured that some food would come with it. Although, of course, his real preference will be the return of food, unaccompanied by any torture. And then he will realize how low his expectations have slipped, how appalling it is for his wish to be prison food and no torture. He will wonder what happened to his will to be free. He'll wonder if he still possesses such a thing. He'll ask himself if he does, and he will realize that he thinks he does, but he cannot be sure. He will pace around his cell and try to think of good rap lines, try to string them together into a good verse, just for his own amusement, for his own benefit. And he will look out his tiny street-level window, the one through which he saw all the rushing feet a few days ago, the one through which he heard all the panic shouting, the uproar which drowned out his shouted questions and demands. And he will look out at that deserted city, and in that doomed and lonely dusk, he will see bats in flight, and he will cry. And the bats in flight will hear her crying, will hear him crying, will hear her crying, will hear him crying. And they will neither know nor care to know what part they have played in eliciting those tears, the way in which their inscrutability, their stealthy allure, has moved these abandoned creatures in the hours before the darkest hours, their darkest hours. The bats in flight will not always be in flight, but she will not see them come to rest. He will not see them come to rest. She will not see them come to rest. He will not see them come to rest. One needs to know no code phrase to go out through the hatch, but if we were to suggest one, it would be something no one could ever guess, such as rumble stilt skin. Because even if someone guessed rumple stilt skin, once they heard that it was incorrect, they would probably head off in a completely different direction with their guesses. It probably would not occur to anyone to try some minor variations on a word that they had just guessed and that was then revealed to be incorrect. We slide down the rope. Our hands get rope burns that sting in our hot showers that we later take. We leave. The battery. This month, Gentlemen's Mills is highlighting all of their most illegal products and services. Why draw special attention to their illegality? Because some customers like that. Will the law ever catch up to us? No, never. How can we be so sure? We ourselves would love to know where our confidence comes from. Jaywalker. This old-timer's walker is constructed of illegally imported blue jays. 1994 copyright scoffer. Make more than one backup cassette copy with our side-by-side -side tape deck functionality. Fair evasion training system. Build your vertical leap to the point of hopping those turnstiles using repurposed training manuals and videos from the Dandy and Adam's very own 1998 collections. 
underground vented motorcycle tunnel. Watch the gentleman dig a precise tunnel with the aid of map, compass, and good old-fashioned trigonometry. We guarantee to dig precisely where we aim, undeterred by the absence of GPS, the bulk of concrete or bathtubs, and the threat of armed guards and sniffing hounds. Conflict of interest generator. Disguised as ethics coaches, the gentlemen dress their most dapper and pepper your employees with moral dilemmas, pitting their own enrichment against many stakeholders' fates. The training is fake. The conflicts are real. Highest efficacy on employees and middle managers who love roleplay. Unlicensed practitioner grab bag. These wide-eyed eagers come ready to perform your most delicate professional chores. Leaded fuel. We put an ungodly amount of lead additive in the gas tanks you instruct, even in the event that your instructed tanks enveloping vehicles are labeled unleaded in the fine print. Union Buster. To reward your employees for forming a labor union, we give the power back to the people by one, issuing shares of the company stock, two, granting those shares to the union member employees, three, shorting the stock, four, using the short proceeds to fund a new competing business, five, running a smear campaign and otherwise destroying the original company, six, covering the short position at a huge profit due to the company's destroyed value, and seven, using the windfall to pay your new company's employees lavish bonuses and perks fit for Silicon Valley. Seaworthy inspectors, we determine that your vessel is seaworthy for recreational or commercial purpose and we stamp your authority on the open waters, guaranteed regardless of boat. I'm Rob Yule Rob by Rob Robson. Gentlemen's Mills garnered a special endorsement deal with none other than motivational speaker and known felon Rob Robson to pen his book on how to rob. Haven't you been attempting bank robberies and been either laughed away or arrested? This handsome hardcover book teaches you the best techniques to get the money you so richly deserve, using such time-honored secrets as picking the right door, not waning in line to rob the bank, and it even features an impactful script for getting the most out of bank tellers. Shoplifting Suit this specially designed bodysuit is covered in a thick adhesive allowing you to bump into toys you want, have them accidentally stick to your very, very sticky bodysuit, and then carry them away to a safe location. You can't get arrested for what happens to adhere to your garment. We've checked, or plan on checking in the near future. Exotic Animal Part Miscellany You'll never know which animal parts you'll get with this giddy, glorious grab bag of gosh-derned goodness. Will you get a Komodo dragon's toenail, a Siberian tiger's whisker, an African elephant's broken tooth? You never know, but suffice it to say, all the animal parts within were illegally harvested and shipped to you. Total Recall Illegal Edition. It's a bootleg. As sweet as candy, baby. This powerful new volume by Virginia Rudney Bowners is both memoir and self-hep book. It examines not only how to steal candy from a baby, but why to steal candy from a baby. 484 pages. Jailbreak. This fun board game, which can be smuggled into prison via a large cake, will enamor and distract the prison guards, who won't be able to resist its intuitive gameplay. While they're playing, you can squeeze by and break out of jail.
Just a warning regarding the dawn is about to begin. Some of you might be wondering why it's still on the show, considering how openly hostile they've been toward me in the show the last few months. But as I said in the intro, a lot of our contributors have probably died, so really, I kind of need to get content wherever I can get it, even if that content is bad and stupid. If for no other reason than to prove to doubters and skeptics that I am not all alone in making this thing, that there are other people who want to be on it even if they are, as I said, bad and stupid. So Regarding the Dawn is still here, but I will just let you know that it's about, oh, five and a half minutes long, so if you want to step away for a bit, maybe run a quick five and a half minute errand, maybe take a quick five and a half minute nap, now would be the perfect time to do so. Hello everyone and welcome to Regarding the Dawn. Welcome to our little outdoor photography corner. Before we go any further this month, I just want to take a moment to thank all of the legions of fans who have reached out to us and told us how much they enjoyed our reviews that we have been doing the last two months. We've been very moved by your response. Very moved. So moved, in fact, that Dwayne and I went back and took stock of all that we accomplished with those two reviews, and we realized what we had actually accomplished. We feel like that work stands as, well, as sort of immaculate bookends. The Holy Mother bookends. We feel... That we have opened a book and a new volume of Regarding of Dawn. Volume 2. And then we finished it. And we closed the book on that part of the project. The end. It's over. Don't make us get a restraining order. Right. And so it's just, well, it's just so perfectly succinct and articulate. Articulate. That we really don't think we can improve on it. It's done. It is finished. So, yeah, we've decided that the only way we could serve you, the listener, and the art was to shelve that book. Bye-bye, volume two. And to return to our other work and to continue to concentrate on the task set before As us. As passed down to us. Yeah, and to instruct you all more perfectly in the ways of photography. Wait, what? What do you mean, what? No more reviews? Seriously, we... No, we're, we were just... That's what we were talking, but... What? Nothing. No. No more reviews, Dwayne. We've mastered that genre of podcast content in two perfect segments. We nailed it. We are going to quit while we are ahead. Moving on. Oh. Seriously? What did you think we were talking about all this month? Oh, well, I I thought we were talking about reviewing other podcasts. What? No. Photography. We're back to photography. Oh, okay. All clear? Crystal. All right, then. So this month on Regarding the Dawn, we will be talking about taking photos at naturist colonies. It's just that... (sighs) Yes, Dwayne? I mean, you said other review podcasts. Dwayne, we aren't doing any more reviews. That part of our lives is over. Over? The door is shut. The book is closed. But, but, no, 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 Adam. No, Adam has no part of this discussion here. Adam is off in his ivory tower in California, not at all affecting us in any way. We don't need him. We don't need anyone. We are fully independent, sentient, art-making creatures who live and breathe and think and create without any influence from others. We pay no attention to him 
or his opinions in any way. Our motives are our own. We finished our art. We are moving on. We are moving? Yes. Uh, I... <sighs> Dwayne, what do we say to Mad Dog from next door? No more do-rags, Oakley sunglasses, and Camaro's blasting Bon Jovi. No, after all that. After all that. Uh, bye, Mad Dog? We, we tell him to move on, Dwayne. Moving on. That's what we're doing. Moving on to complete our long-term project. The punk rock opera? No, Dwayne, no. The photography segment, remember? Regarding the dawn, not regarding the yawn. Photos, cameras, nature, art, aesthetics, philosophy, teaching. Well, I mean, I spent four hours talking to Earl Ray about fishing equipment, so... I could be ready to review a fishing equipment review podcast, and, and I just think that Dwayne, what is wrong with you? Snap out of it. Have you forgotten who you are, who we are here? What is your purpose? Why, why am I here? So, uh, Dwayne, you are here to, to help me teach nature photography and create great art. Great art? Yes. But... What is great art? Exactly. Now you're getting it. Great art? Like, you mean that that Ansel Adams guy? No! Oh, what I mean, Dwayne, which is that you have to snap out of this. Hello, Earth to Dwayne! Do you read me? Loud and clear, good buddy. Oh, Dwayne. I need you here on the podcast, on planet Earth. You don't need anyone. You are a fully independent sentient. Well, yes, I mean, that's that's true. I mean, hey, that's not what I'm talking about. Oh! All right, uh, I didn't want to do this, but you leave me no choice. No choice? Gee, honey! What? That's right, you heard me. Folk music rules! What did you say, you moronic hippie-loving- No, easy, easy, Dwayne. I didn't mean it. I had to. You forced me- I'll force you to eat those words, you soybean frappuccino-drinking, patchouli-loving- oh, Stop it! Stop choking me! Oh, stop breathing stop. and I'll stop choking oh, you! Alright, stop it! Get out of me! Shut up, Ben! Regarding the dawn, regarding the dawn, reviewing all chaos for you. Uh, okay, this is a new location, Grang. Where are you? Why are you covered in grease? Yes, I am in a new location now. I'm in the state of North Dakota, and I'm covered in grease because I've been working all day. You're in North Dakota. Why are you in North Dakota? Did, did you get some different kind of job? I thought you were working for the Caribou in Des Moines. Well, a lot's changed since we last spoke, Trent. Much of it for the better. What happened? The, the Caribou sent the login information somewhere else? Someone else stole it? Or, you know, actually, you know what? Let's not do this thing where you just fill me in piecemeal and nothing makes sense and I end up having to make you back up and start at the beginning anyway. Just jump there now. What happened with your busload of felons you were planning on taking to Wisconsin to fly fish while telling him they were actually in Canada? Oh, that part worked perfectly. 
The felons had a great time fly fishing in what they all believed to be Canada due to my tireless efforts to override their innate sense that they were still on native soil. The fake border crossing worked perfectly. None of them peeked out from under their blankets until we were deep in the Wisconsin woods, and I started manufacturing evidence that we were indeed in Canada almost immediately. For example, that first evening when they started fly fishing, I went upstream and dumped a bunch of empty syrup bottles in the river. Then when the bottles floated past the fishing felons, one of them noticed that one of the bottles had a note in it, which turned out to be a recipe for poutine. Of course, I was the one who put that note there. Ingenious. Exactly what I'd expect in Canada. Right, exactly. I had to do that kind of thing constantly to keep them from getting suspicious that they were still in the States. Once I pretended to find a cache of Mountie hats and Tim Hortons cups inside a hollow tree. Of course, I'd stashed it there beforehand. Another time I got really lucky because while the felons were fishing, I found the carcass of a dead rabbit in the woods and I was able to put a pair of ice skates on its hind feet and bring it back camp to show the felons. That was toward the end when their innate sense that they were on native soil was really strong and I was having to spend almost all my time producing evidence that we were really in Canada. Fortunately, I was prepared for exactly that circumstance. One of my best techniques was where I hit a battery-powered boombox in the woods. And whenever I'd see that the felons were getting extra suspicious that they weren't in Canada, I'd sneak away and start blasting a collective soul CD. Then I'd come back to the camp and say, Ah, sounds like the Canadians camping nearby are listening to Collective Soul again. Uh, okay, I, I don't get it. Why Collective Soul? They're not Canadian, are they? Canadians love Collective Soul, Drent. I had a neighbor who was from Canada, and he loved Collective Soul. Oh, also I taught Sammy and Teddy Crozevelt to squawk, This is Canada! which they did and still do constantly at all hours of the day. It sounds to me like you were the one making the felons suspicious that they weren't in Canada, Grang. No, exactly the, the opposite. I was the one keeping a lid on that suspicion. We never would have made it the whole week were it not for my tireless efforts to convince the felons they were really in Canada. You should have seen the strange looks on their faces that could only have been caused by the feeling of overwhelming evidence defying one's innate sense about being on native soil when they woke up one morning and they all discovered the loonies I'd hidden under their pillows during the night. Loonies, by the way, what they call the $1 coins in Canada. Where did you tell them the coins had come from? I pretended to be just as baffled as they were. But whatever had put those coins under our pillows, surely if we were in the U.S. it would have gone with the Sacagawea dollars instead, right? So, so how does this end up with you in North Dakota? Where are the felons? Well, the felons are in Canada. All right, Greg, what are you... I, I thought you only took them to Wisconsin. This would all be easier to accept if all my confidence in your ability to know what country you're in hadn't been systematically destroyed over the last few months. Well, the felons are in Canada because at the end of the fly fishing week in Wisconsin, they all got back onto the bus, which I had borrowed from the caribou, and I made them all get back under their blankets so, as I told them, we could sneak back across the border without them being seen. Of course, the real purpose was so that they wouldn't see that we never crossed a border. But I took a wrong turn, accidentally went north, and when we got to the Canadian border, I panicked as the border guards approached the bus. So I rammed through the gate, and then by sheer good luck, the border guards who attempted to pursue me crashed into each other, and I was able to escape. But now I was stuck in Canada with a busload of felons. So I left the bus in a parking lot with the felons still hidden under their blankets, took the money they'd paid me for the trip, and fled on foot, hitchhiking my way back west until I was able to sneak back across the U.S. border into North Dakota on foot. 
Wait, okay, so so after all that effort to convince the felons they were in Canada while they were actually in Wisconsin, you really did end up just abandoning them in Canada? They're going to be incredibly angry with you, Grang, and you abandoned the bus, too. Didn't you say the bus was the Caribou's? Does he know you had it? Yes, the bus belongs to the Caribou's business. So as an employee, I was entitled to use it because I saw where he hid the keys for it, which I wouldn't have been able to do if I wasn't an employee. But I knew that when I returned with money for 63 trips to Canada in one week after he told me I only needed money for 50, which he thought would take me a whole year, he wouldn't care that I took the bus. In fact, he'd be thrilled that I took that bus. And then he'd give me the login information for the old Out of Old Doors blog and everything you and I have hoped for would come true. But you left his bus in Canada and uh, full of felons. Yes, well, that's why I'm working for Maurice now. You're, you're working to, uh, to what? Earn enough money to replace the bus? What happened to the money you got from the felons? Well, I can't return to the Caribou with only the bus, Drent. I have to have a bus and enough money to represent at least 50 runs across the Canadian border. That's the only way I can get access to the login information. So what I did was I took the money I had from the felons, which was not enough to buy a bus, and bought a car, and then I brought that car to Maurice, and he's going to turn it into a bus once I do enough work for him to pay off the mechanical transformation in labor. And then once the car is a bus, I'll keep working for him until I get enough money to return to the caribou, give him the bus, give him the money, and receive access to the login information. All right, well, well, first of all, how long is all that going to take? Not all that long. Maurice pays very well. And there's lots of work, and actually, the caribou's rates are pretty cheap, so the amount of money I have to bring him isn't that much. The biggest expense, honestly, is going to be Maurice turning that car into a bus. So why didn't you just keep the money, work for Maurice, and then earn enough to buy a bus? No, no, no. Don't you know how expensive buses are? Trust me, this is a much better option. Why would mechanical transformation shops even exist if they weren't more cost-effective than just buying the thing you want? No, it's much better to take a thing that you already have and then turn it into a different thing that you want. Much cheaper and less wasteful. All right, I I should be honest, Grang. I've never heard of a mechanical transformation shop before. I, I mean, turning a car into a bus, that doesn't even sound possible. That's the kind of thing you're doing? That's the work that that you are doing? Well, Maurice is a wizard. He can turn almost any kind of machine into almost any other kind of machine. I'm still trying to learn, but to be honest, I'm not picking it up very quickly. I spent the last few days trying to turn chainsaws into riding lawnmowers. I've mostly just turned them into worse chainsaws, though. Once I turned a chainsaw into just a heap of parts. My biggest success is that I turned a chainsaw into a riding chainsaw, so I'm getting there. I'm getting closer. Well, it sounds like things are proceeding more or less as usual, then. Exactly, yes, and thank you for the optimism. Like I said, big changes, but mostly for the better. All right, well, uh, good luck with your chainsaws. Uh, I guess we'll check in with you next month if the felons haven't caught up with you and killed you. And before you stop me and tell me you've got an idea for a new segment, I already know it's going to be about this mechanical transformation stuff, and I don't care what the title is. I already understand the concept to the extent that I need to to make a decision, and the answer is no, you can't do a segment about that. Now, Drent, hold, just hold on. While it's true that I do have a new segment idea for Out of All Doors, it has nothing to do with mechanical transformation. Nothing. All right. Uh, I'll call this bluff. So what is it? It's called... Um, it's, 
It's called Corrective Soul. And uh, and what I do is what I do is I find common misinterpretations of Collective Soul lyrics, and I patiently but firmly correct them. No, so Greg, that no, that's the single worst idea I've ever heard for a segment for any show of any kind. Uh, goodbye. Bye. Close your eyes. Focus on the feeling of the insides of your upper eyelids gliding down over the wet, convex surfaces of your eyeballs and gently coming to rest against the rims of your lower eyelids. Lie down. Focus on the feeling of your body's weight compressing the interior of whichever surface you have chosen for lying down upon, be it mattress, cushion, carpet, or earth. Please do not choose a rigid, uncompressible surface for lying down upon, for in such a case, how will you focus on the feeling of your body's weight compressing it? Relax. Focus on the feelings of your muscles, tight, taut, and tense, loosening, the fibers slackening, shortening, thickening. Focus on the feeling of your blood easing up on the gas, proceeding through your veins and arteries at a stately, dignified pace. You find yourself facing down three conflicts in your life. Two of them are of your own making, but one of them is a conflict born solely of poor fortune, a conflict for which no sane man or woman would expect you to share the burden of fault. These three conflicts are arrayed before you, challenging you all at once, three on one. Hardly a fair fight, yet here they are, ghastly monsters all, giving not one thought to fairness. But you must engage them. If you don't conquer them, they'll conquer you, or else they'll just linger forever, stinking up your life, for indeed they all stink. One like rotten eggs, one like rotten fruit, and the third like rotten flesh. Combined, the stench is like if a man broke into a grocery store at night, laid an egg in the produce section, and then died of an aneurysm. And then the store didn't open again for two months because of a mix-up on the app the employees use for their work schedules to see when their shifts are and stuff. So by the time the people returned to the store, the egg, the produce, and the body were all rotten. The first conflict steps forward and stinks of rotten egg. It has long hair like a dolly called something like Brush Me Betsy or Brush Me Betty or Brush Me Bessie. But the sad part is that this conflict's hair appears to have never been brushed by a child or anyone else. It's a tangled mess. At this point, no normal human would ever be able to get a brush through it, especially not a little child using a toy brush. The conflict bears its teeth. If it were to lose one of its teeth, then I would have to say the conflict bears its tooth, because currently, conflict only has two teeth, one on the top, one on the bottom, just left of center and directly opposite each other so that the conflict can still gnash them together. They wiggle ominously as it gnashes them together, which makes you wonder if perhaps this is what happened to the rest of its teeth, gnashed too hard and too much. The conflict roars and its breath stinks like rotten fruit, which makes you wonder if it has been licking the conflict that smells like rotten fruit recently. The conflict paces back and forth before you, howling with rage every time it accidentally drops its cruel club on the ground, howling with rage every time it accidentally treads upon the heel of one of its own feet with the toes of the other of its own feet. How to solve a conflict such as this? How to resolve it and leave it behind you, diminishing in scale as it recedes further into your memory? You shop around, find the most reasonable price, and pay someone to make it go away. The second conflict steps forward, reeking of rotten fruit. Its eyes are watery, perhaps irritated by the stench of the body of which they are a part. 
This conflict wears pants, a belt, and a button-up shirt, but it wears all of them in a pile atop its head as if to make a statement about some dress code somewhere, as if it's planning to walk into the place that has the dress code and say, what, I'm wearing them, aren't I? The conflict wields a bow in each hand and has a quiver of arrows on its back. How will it take the arrows from the quiver with a bow in each hand? How will it notch an arrow or draw either of the bows with a bow in each hand? The conflict has not considered this. Still, it's formidable. It's big enough to defeat you by kicking you, for example, which is an action that would not be hindered by the bows it holds in both hands. Still, the conflict seems intent on using the bows. It didn't go to the trouble of acquiring two bows and carrying them all the way here just to kick you to death. You get a great idea of how to solve this conflict. Psychology. No, not from a professional, but rather from your own understanding of it. You get straight to work, peering at the conflict through the lens of psychology, studying it from one angle and then another. That's how you see the loose fiber at the base of the conflict's neck. You tug on the fiber and the conflict falls into its component parts on the floor. You pick up each of these parts and put them in their own trash bag, one trash bag per part. You then leave the pile of trash bag parts right where they lie. The third conflict steps forward. This is the one that smells like rotten flesh. This is the one that came about through no fault of your own, a conflict of circumstance, of happenstance, of old-fashioned bad luck. Now this conflict you don't hate. It stinks like a dead body, yes, but there was something appealing about it initially. Now, of course, it's overstayed its welcome, but you had some okay times with it. The time has come for it to go, though, and it's being stubborn. It's burrowing down into the hay as if you won't see it there. It's digging its claws into the floor as if you can't just pry up those pieces of the floor. It's waving a massive torch at you as if you're somehow afraid of having much of your body covered in third-degree burns. In other, more succinct but less descriptive words, the third conflict is making a scene. Now it's hollering out some of your embarrassing secrets about you. It seems that it may have read your diary, the one marked public information please read in a dramatic example of reverse psychology. But where psychology assisted you with your second conflict, reverse psychology has failed you with the third conflict. Fortunately, the conflict is getting many of the details about your embarrassing secrets wrong, which gives you a little something you like to call plausible deniability. Yes, between psychology and plausible deniability, you're having quite a day in terms of things you like to mention. As the third conflict bears its left flank, you spot your opportunity. You jab it with a big red rubber stamp that officially relegates it to a distant filing cabinet where you will never have to see it again unless you decide you'd like to pull it out in order to gain some sort of advantage in a future conflict. Sometimes pitting conflicts against other conflicts can be gratifying, and it's always nice to have a few on hand, especially if they're ones for which you bear no fault, especially if they're conflicts with which you actually had some good times. One thing's for sure, you fully understand the symbolism of all this stuff, even the sloppy parts. You accept the sloppiness as a deliberate artistic effort to veil meaning so as not to seem too obvious or trite. You reflect on the three conflicts you've resolved today, one with money, one with psychology, and one with categorization slash storage. You didn't even get to performative venting, secretly partial third-party mediation, or martyrdom. Maybe next time. For now, open your eyes. Return to your regular life, but as you do, keep the peace of recently thrice proven maturity with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors.
Thank you for listening to the 34th episode of Out of All Doors. Here are this month's writing and performance credits. Ben Bird, Chris Nichols, Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfuss, and Brang. The music credits are as follows. Casey By, J.J. Evans, Chris Nichols, and Aaron Eikenberry set up the technical stuff for me. Please rate this podcast. Please write a review. Please subscribe. I also have another podcast called Bedtime Stories and another concluded podcast called One Man's World. You can find them on iTunes or on my website, hugepop.com, where you can also find a link to the music I make as the mispronouncer. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash hugepop, where for $1 or more per month, you can get access to exclusive content. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a month with the 35th episode of Out of All Doors. <laughs>